This episode of the MedBullet Step 1 podcast will go over the topic of asthma from the respiratory section on MedBullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A five-year-old with severe asthma is being treated in the ER with an IV aminophylline drip. The child is slowly becoming sleepy and less responsive. Physical exam reveals less wheezing than on admission. Representative lung histology shows a Kirschman spiral. Now let's get into the episode. So as a quick introduction, the definition of asthma is episodic and reversible bronchoconstriction, with the bronchioles being the most susceptible respiratory segment. This is a result of inflammation, bronchial smooth muscle hypertrophy and hyperreactivity, as well as mucus plugging. Now let's talk about the classification of asthma, which is divided into two types, extrinsic and intrinsic. Extrinsic is typically seen in children with a genetic predisposition. This is a type 1 hypersensitivity to an inhaled or external allergen. This proceeds by specific stages, and these are sensitization, early activation, and late activation. Sensitization is characterized by CD4-TH2 cells which produce cytokines, specifically IL-4 and IL-5, when initially stimulated by an allergen. IL-4 induces an antibody isotype switch to IgE, and IL-5 induces eosinophil activation. Moving on to early activation, This is characterized by mast cells that are activated by cross-linking of IgE and release of immune-activating substances like histamine, leukotrienes, and acetylcholine when the allergen is presented again. Histamine results in bronchoconstriction, chemotaxis for immune cells, and mucus production. Acetylcholine results in bronchoconstriction, which is parasympathetic-mediated. And finally, know that leukotrienes C4, D4, and E4 induce bronchoconstriction. Moving on to late activation, In this stage, eosinophils are activated, and they are recruited by eotaxin. They produce major basic protein, which causes further constriction slash damage in the airways. Moving on to the intrinsic type of asthma, this is non-allergen-mediated and can be induced by infection, behavioral causes, or chemical causes. Infection can include viral URI, like RSV, rhinovirus, and parainfluenza virus. Behavioral causes can include exertion and stress and chemical causes can include drug sensitivity, for example NSAIDs and aspirin, and ozone-produced free radicals. Finally, just a quick word about status asthmaticus. This is a life-threatening asthma attack that does not respond to standard treatments. Now, let's talk about the presentation of asthma. Symptoms can include wheezing, cough, and mucus production. Note that a child who is becoming sleepy and less responsive is most likely failing, retaining CO2, like we discussed in the clinical snapshot at the beginning of the episode, and these patients need intubation. On physical exam, asthma patients may have tachycardia, tachypnea with the use of accessory muscles, which is the result of a reduced inspiratory slash expiratory ratio. You may see pulsus paradoxus, which is the result of increased lung volume and vascular resistance. And on auscultation, you may hear prolonged expiratory wheezes, sometimes inspiratory, a high-pitched sibilant ronchi, dyspnea, and or persistent cough with hyperinflation of the lungs. Moving on to imaging, a chest radiograph can be normal or may show hyperinflation. Now let's talk about some specific studies for asthma. In terms of labs, an ABG or arterial blood gas may initially show respiratory alkalosis. If carbon dioxide or CO2 is normal, respiratory failure may be imminent. Elevated CO2 or respiratory acidosis are ominous signs and the patient likely requires intubation. Pulmonary function tests are another study used in the setting of asthma, and in these patients' peak flows will be diminished. An obstructive pattern may be seen when symptomatic, that is, when there is a decreased FEV1 to FEC ratio, 
However, they will have improvement with bronchodilator administration. Pulmonary function tests may also reveal high airway resistance. Moving on to a methacholine challenge, which is another study used in the setting of asthma, this is a provocative measure of hyperactivity in a well patient. This functions as a muscarinic cholinergic agonist, and know that reduction of FEV1 by greater than 20% is diagnostic of asthma. Skin testing may result in a hypersensitivity response to an allergen when presented into the skin. However, keep in mind that this really diagnoses atopy and not asthma. Now let's talk about some histological changes, specifically in the terminal bronchioles and the bronchi. In the terminal bronchioles, you may see mucus plugs and increased mucus-producing cells. With respect to mucus plugs, you should know about Kirschman spirals, which are the presence of trapped epithelial cells killed by eosinophil-produced major basic protein, and charcoal-laden crystals, which are aggregated eosinophils. Moving on to histological changes in the bronchi, you may see a thickened basement membrane, which is unique to asthma, hypertrophy of submucosal glands and smooth muscle, which is also seen in other lung disorders including chronic bronchitis, and increased immune cell presence. Finally, let's end this review session talking about treatment of asthma. We'll go over the treatment in the setting of an acute exacerbation, status asthmaticus, and maintenance treatment. So in an acute exacerbation, you will use oxygen and inhaled beta-2 agonists. Short-acting beta-2 agonists are preferred, for example, albuterol, and this is appropriate for exercise-induced asthma. Be sure to administer the inhaled beta-2 agonist before exertion in known asthmatics. Finally, an acute exacerbation can also be treated with systemic corticosteroids, whether PO or IV. In the setting of status asthmaticus, these patients should be treated with oxygen, bronchodilators, and steroids. You can also use a sympathomimetic bronchodilator, for example, epinephrine, as well as intubation and mechanical ventilation as needed. Maintenance therapy includes inhaled corticosteroids, which is the mainstay, long-acting bronchodilators like beta-2 agonists, and should be used in combination with inhaled corticosteroids, as there is an increased risk of death if used without an inhaled corticosteroid. Other types of maintenance treatments include montelukast, chromalin, which is rarely used, however, can be a supplemental treatment for exercise-induced asthma, theophylline, which is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, and this is also rarely used, ipratropium bromide, which is an anticholinergic that inhibits the contraction of smooth muscle and is used in the elderly with an asthmatic component to their COPD. Finally, teotropium is more recently shown to be efficacious and safe. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A nine-year-old boy is brought to the emergency department by ambulance due to difficulty breathing. On presentation, he is found to be straining to breathe. Physical exam reveals bilateral prolonged expiratory wheezing, difficulty speaking, and belly breathing. Radiographs also reveal hyperinflation of the lungs. He is given oxygen as well as albuterol, which begins to reverse the flow limitation in the airway segments of this patient. The airway segment that is most susceptible to this type of flow limitation has which of the following characteristics? And the choices are 1. Contains C-shaped hyaline cartilage rings. 2. Contains mucus-producing goblet cells. 3. Distal most extent of smooth muscle. 4. Lined by only simple cuboidal cells and five lined by type one and type two pneumocytes. The correct answer to this question is three, distal most extent of smooth muscle. So this patient with dyspnea, cough, and expiratory wheezing most likely has asthma, which features airway flow limitation due to smooth muscle contraction that influences conducting bronchioles most dramatically. 
This segment is the distalmost extent of smooth muscle in the respiratory tree. To quickly review, smooth muscle surrounds the conducting airway segments from the trachea down to the conducting bronchioles. They can contract or relax in order to modulate the resistance to airflow experienced by the respiratory tree. In asthma, episodic and reversible bronchoconstriction episodes can be triggered by allergic, infectious, chemical, or behavioral stressors. Acute episodes can be alleviated by administering the beta-adrenergic agonist albuterol. Notably, conducting bronchioles are most susceptible to smooth muscle-mediated flow limitation, and this segment is also the distalmost extent of smooth muscle lining in the respiratory tree. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1 contains C-shaped hyaline cartilage rings describes the trachea. However, the segment that is most affected by smooth muscle contraction is the conducting bronchioles. Answer 2 contains mucus-producing goblet cells describes both the trachea as well as the bronchi. However, the segment that is most affected by smooth muscle contraction is the conducting bronchioles. Answer 4, lined by only simple cuboidal cells, describes respiratory bronchioles. However, the segment that is most affected by smooth muscle contraction is conducting bronchioles. And finally, answer 5, lined by type 1 and type 2 pneumocytes, describes alveoli. However, the segment that is most affected by smooth muscle contraction is conducting bronchioles. To leave you with a bullet summary, conducting bronchioles are the respiratory segment that is most susceptible to smooth muscle-mediated flow limitation. Moving on to the next question. A 30-year-old woman presents to the urgent care center with progressively worsening cough and difficulty breathing. She has had similar prior episodes since childhood, one of which required intubation with mechanical ventilation. On physical exam, she appears anxious and diaphoretic, with diffuse wheezes and diminished breath sounds bilaterally. First-line treatment for this patient's symptoms act by which of the following mechanisms of action? And the choices are 1, beta-1 agonist, 2, beta-1 antagonist, 3, beta-2 agonist, 4, beta-2 antagonist, and 5, beta-3 agonist. The correct answer to this question is 3, beta-2 agonist. So this clinical presentation is consistent with an acute asthma exacerbation. First-line treatment for an asthma exacerbation is with the beta-2 agonist. To quickly review, in an acute asthma exacerbation, patients may be tachycardic, tachypnic, hypoxic, and show evidence of respiratory distress, such as use of accessory muscles like sternocleidomastoids and intercostals, or the inability to speak in complete sentences. They will have increased respiratory drive, resulting in hyperventilation, which is characterized with a decreased PaCO2 of less than 40. Progressive hypercapnia, defined as PaCO2 of greater than 45, signifies impending respiratory failure and is an indication for intubation with mechanical ventilation. Asthma exacerbations are potentially life-threatening, but reversible and require early, aggressive treatment. As reviewed by Pollard et al., the goals of asthma treatment are to correct hypoxia, reverse airflow obstruction, and reduce risk of relapse. Supplemental oxygen can help correct hypoxia, and systemic corticosteroids can reduce relapse. Short-acting beta-2 agonists reverse airflow obstruction by promoting bronchodilation. They act by stimulating adenylate cyclase, which leads to closing of the calcium channels and relaxation of bronchial smooth muscles. Short-acting beta-2 agonists can be administered via nebulizer or a metered dose inhaler with a spacer. Nebulizers are often used in hospital settings, but are more expensive, less portable, and require electricity. A meta-analysis by Cates et al. comparing treatment with nebulizers versus metered-dose inhalers found no significant difference in hospital admission rates, length of stay, peak flow, or forced expiratory volume among adults. Interestingly, children had shorter lengths of stay in the emergency department if treated with metered-dose inhalers. 
So quickly go over the incorrect answers. Answer one, beta-1 agonists like dobutamine act primarily on the heart to increase the heart rate and contractility. Answer two, beta-1 antagonists like metoprolol lower blood pressure by reducing heart rate and contractility. Answer four, beta-2 antagonists like non-selective beta blockers such as propanolol and natalol may promote bronchoconstriction and worsen an asthma exacerbation. And finally, answer five, beta-3 receptors are present on adipose tissue and a beta-3 agonist would promote lipolysis. And moving on to the final question, a 14-year-old boy presents to his primary care physician for shortness of breath. He has never experienced this before. He noticed that his symptoms started when he joined a ski club and that they are worse with skiing. The patient is otherwise healthy and takes no medications. His temperature is 97.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.4 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 110 over 74 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 88 per minute. Respirations are 22 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 94% on room air. Pulmonary exam is notable for bilateral wheezes with good overall air movement. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment for this patient? And the choices are 1. Albuterol, 2. Budesonide, 3. Ipratropium, 4. Montelukast, and 5. Salmeterol. The correct answer to this question is 1. Albuterol. So this patient is presenting with shortness of breath and wheezing, which started after joining a ski club. He likely has exercise-induced asthma that is worsened by the cold weather and should be treated with an albuterol inhaler. Albuterol is a short-acting bronchodilator that is usually taken via inhaler or nebulizer. Beta-2 adrenergic receptors are located in smooth muscle throughout the airway. Activation of these receptors by albuterol leads to activation of adenylyl cyclase and causes an increase in intracellular cyclic AMP concentrations, leading to protein kinase A activation. Protein kinase A inhibits phosphorylation of myosin and decreases intracellular calcium concentrations, thereby causing relaxation of the smooth muscle, or bronchodilation, within minutes. Short-acting bronchodilators are the mainstay of the treatment of asthma. Generally, the progression of treatment is as follows. Step 1, a short-acting bronchodilator as needed. Step 2, a short-acting bronchodilator as needed plus a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. Step 3 is a short-acting bronchodilator as needed plus a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid plus a long-acting bronchodilator, leukotriene receptor antagonist, theophylline, or xylutan. Step 4 is a short-acting bronchodilator as needed plus a medium-dose inhaled corticosteroid plus a long-acting bronchodilator, a leukotriene receptor antagonist, theophylline, or xylutan. Step 5 is a short-acting bronchodilator as needed plus high-dose inhaled corticosteroid plus a long-acting bronchodilator, plus or minus omalizumab for allergic asthma, and step six is a short-acting bronchodilator as needed, plus a high-dose inhaled corticosteroid, plus a long-acting bronchodilator, plus an oral corticosteroid, plus or minus omalizumab for allergic asthma. Asthma can be exacerbated by exercise or cold. For patients with mild symptoms that are situational, such as exertion, an albuterol inhaler is an appropriate initial treatment. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer two, budesonide is an inhaled corticosteroid that can treat asthma symptoms and decrease the likelihood of recurrence over hours to days. In the short term, steroids decrease vasodilation, capillary permeability, and leukocyte migration to sites of inflammation. In the long term, they suppress airway reactivity and inflammation by inhibiting phospholipase A2 and inflammatory transcription factors such as NF-kappa-B while promoting the production of anti-inflammatory cytokines such as interleukin-10. 
Answer 3. Ipertropium is an anticholinergic agent that blocks muscarinic receptors. By inhibiting parasympathetic activity in the airway, it prevents bronchoconstriction, that is smooth muscle contraction, and decreases bronchial secretions. It is indicated along with a short-acting bronchodilator and systemic corticosteroid for the treatment of severe acute asthma exacerbations. Ipertropium can also be used as long-term maintenance therapy in COPD but is not recommended for asthma maintenance. Answer 4. Montelukast is a leukotriene receptor antagonist. Leukotrienes including LTC4, LTD4, and LTE4 are released by mast cells and eosinophils, then bind to receptors located on airway smooth muscle cells and macrophages. This results in bronchoconstriction, mucus secretion, vascular permeability, and eosinophil recruitment, all of which contribute to the pathophysiology of asthma. Thus, by blocking the leukotriene receptors, Montelukast can suppress asthma symptoms and prevent exacerbations when used as maintenance therapy, often in conjunction with inhaled corticosteroids. And finally, answer 5, salmeterol, like formoterol, is a long-acting beta-2 agonist. Its mechanism of action is similar to that of albuterol, but it has a slower onset and longer duration of action. As such, it can be used alongside inhaled corticosteroids for asthma maintenance therapy, but not for the rapid relief of acute symptoms. Long-acting bronchodilators are inappropriate management of mild asthma and may actually worsen mortality by desensitizing beta-2 receptors. To leave you with a bullet summary, short-acting beta-2 agonists such as albuterol are the treatment of choice for relief of acute symptoms, that is, a rescue inhaler, in all asthma patients. That's all for this review about asthma. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullet Step 1 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 1 podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.